Welcome to the CDC Podcast Minisode 12. Joining me this month is independent game critic Nick Capazzoli. Hi, happy to be here. For those who may not know, the purpose of these minisodes is for two of us to highlight three games each. These are games that haven't gotten much or any criticism at all. The idea is that one of you listening right now may change that and try them out and write about them. The games we talk about will range from anything from itchy art games to prestige level indie games right on through to AAA games that you may not have tried. Nick, you're up first. Okay. Well, so the first one I guess I want to try out is Reap by uh, Daniel Linson. I think he goes by Manigore for a lot of his games releases. Uh, he did uh, one recently, let's say it's called uh, Window Frame, which is where one where you... You kind of pull out like a, a traditional like Windows window on your desktop to change the game space and move around. Very kind of clever, minimalistic little side scrollers or top down uh, indie games. Uh, and I think this one was one that he produced for Ludum Dare 34, I think. And uh, I think the specification for those was something like two button controls, I think. So really, really simple inputs. But um, uh, this one called Reap that he made, I, I was like instantly drawn in by the, just the look of it. Really, really simple, pared down aesthetic. It's a top down game. You're sort of looking at something that sort of looks like a like an old Zelda map, you know, little islands and, and forests kind of blocked out really simply, uh, all done in shades of uh, kind of browns and tans. And just, you know, I've always kind of like liked like a, a cartography is like just like uh, maps are always really, really beautiful and interesting to me. And this one generates these procedural ones every single time you start a game. And uh, really simply, it's like a kind of a pared down survival game. You know, uh, I think for anyone who's played like a, a Rust or Ark or something like that, it's the same sort of mechanics, basically. You know, you just get plopped down into the world. You Your job is to find whatever tools you have available to, you know, survive the night and then move on from then. And uh, kind of create like little shelter areas and explore and gradually kind of, I think the objective ultimately is to collect uh, treasures that are found in like each of the corners of the map. I haven't actually been able to do it yet, but a lot of fun. Can you sort of like explain like what's going on? Because you said it's like a brownish map, but like what are the, like the two buttons of this, that this Luton Dare specify? Yeah, so... Uh, as I recall it, uh, the two buttons, one is for your left hand, I think, and one is for your right hand. And you can use them to pick up things like uh, a shovel or uh, the, the food in the game that you use to survive are like these little turnips that you you, know, you plant the seeds and then you harvest them later to, to keep your character going. I think one of the things that I really like about it is the presentation, the way the UI works. So the, the entire game is presented in a circle. And the circle represents basically your field of vision. So it kind of you know, at the boundaries of it, that's where your vision of the map ends. And that circle, as you're going throughout the day, gradually shrinks. Uh, and around the perimeter of it, like revolving around the perimeter of the circle, is the sun to show the passage of the day. Uh, it's really just a, an elegant kind of minimalistic way of, of getting you all the information that you need to know, like with this kind of abstracted 2D presentation. So as the day goes on and it starts to get a little bit darker, your field of view shrinks as the actual game space shrinks. And that circle starts to close in as the sun goes around the perimeter of it until eventually your character basically like just songs out and passes out. So the task for you is to make sure that during that course of that one day, like while your field of vision is good, that you explore, you find, you know, a place where you can get food, a place where you can get lumber from cutting down trees with your axes and things like that. You know, turning them into the, uh, like, a, 
a little farmland area where you can get enough food to sustain you for a trip out to the edges of the map where you can find those treasure maps. Really simple little objectives, but um, just really, really elegant presentation, I thought. Oh. I actually found it on um, uh, Warp Door. They, you know, such a great little uh, collection site that, you know, really great for keeping up on top of all the little game jam and Ludum Dare games that people put together for, you know, based on these little prompts. I like that the there's like this host of things telling me what all the different icons can do and what they do when you combine them in certain ways. It almost feels like, a, like an inspiration for Minecraft in that regard. Yeah, I think so. We're like the little transmutation of the different blocks, basically, that you have to work with. Where like, oh, uh, you know, this is the icon for a tree. You can turn the tree into this icon for wood. You can turn the wood into this icon for a raft or a bridge or something like that. You know, just like a one into the other, into the other, to you know, a little alchemy to to change the little symbols from one thing to another. You know, uh, simple, but easily, you, you know, you, you grasp it in an instant. Okay, if I use the axe on the, on the uh, forest icon, it turns into a little wood icon. Then I take the little wood icon, I combine those, and I can make a raft. I can use the raft to sail somewhere. And you turn a blank piece of soil... And then you can till it so it has these two bumps in it, which you can then put a turnip in to get more turnips. Yeah. And, you know, I think for anyone who, who's used to looking at maps, especially when you, you know, a very simple map design, like if you want to render, you know, like a little hill or something like that, you put a little bump on it or something like that. So that when you, you look at it looking down onto the, the surface, the, the cartography is instantly recognizable. Okay, that's where there, there are hills. That's where there are forests. There's little bubbly thing to represent the edges of the forest. And the game really, I think it distills what the essence is of like what you need to understand, you know, those simple shapes and stuff like that. You know, um, water is just a, a few little striated lines like out, you know, uh, off, off the edges of beaches. Very, very easy to, you know, you look at it and you instantly get it. You know, there's something very intrinsic, you know, like very, very innate about it where you're like, I know exactly what these symbols mean. So you can just pick it up and play. Listening to your description, I didn't quite get it, but as soon as I see the like the image of like a screen of how it plays, it's like, oh, that's actually <laughs> rather that's actually rather ingenious. Like, because this it almost looks like a globe with the way yeah. it, like it curves, except I, I presume it's just a moving circle rather than one that rotates. Right. Yeah. It's a moving. <laughs> so the circle. Your character is always in the center of it, and that the the circle that's around them represents. It's it's basically supposed to be an abstraction of your field of vision, hmm. and then as you walk around and the you know time passes in the game, that field of vision, that circle, gradually shrinks closer and closer to your character, so that you can see less and less of what's around you. You know, it, because as the player, like that starts to be get get a bit laborious because you know you can you know when that field of vision shrinks really far down, you can find that oh I you get trapped in like dead ends and stuff like that much easier because you can't see what's in your you know periphery very well. So it becomes a thing where, okay, I want to do most of my work, like for the survival sim. I want to be doing it during the day when I can see what's around me, when it's easier to move. And then as soon as it starts to get a little bit dark, you want to kind of settle down, retreat back to your kind of like base camp area that you set up and, uh, you know, do the stuff that you can do when you don't need to, when you can't see, you know, six feet in front of you kind of thing. So you just get the four, get the, is it four treasures or... I don't exactly know. Um, I collected a few of them in my game when I was playing, but uh, I didn't get all of them. But yeah, they, they, they tucked them into the corners of the map, you know, which has 
there are islands that are separated around, you know, off of wherever you started, and you have to figure out how you can get through the maze of forest to get to them, what you have to cut down to get there. You have to build rafts to sail to the islands and figure out where you can land. About, I was so about it can actually to take a fair bit of time. I was about to say, it's like, and then how does it end? I really, it's a Ludum Dare game. It might not actually have an end. Yeah, it may just restart for all I know. But, um, you know, the, just the I think the whole presentation of it was really, really novel, like, you know, to take these these things and how, how can I abstract field of vision in a 2D game? How can I abstract the passage of time, you know, and, and the map icons when I only have, a, you know, a limited set of resources? And, and how can I let a player do all these things with two buttons? But there was a really, really elegant, is I think the word I want to use for it, really elegant solution for it. All right. Uh, coincidentally enough, my first game is a game jam game as well. Hmm. And it's just one of those things that I think like Warped Door or one of those other indie games Twitter accounts just pops out every occasion. And I clicked it back in 2014 because that's when the jam was and I just never played it until recently. So it's just been sitting there. And it's called Composition in a Minor Key. And I was fascinated by it. It's by Alekis Semelov. I am so sorry to anyone whose name I ever have to say on this show. Let's say Semilov. Yeah. And what's interesting is that it's a mostly text-based adventure game, except, as it, as it says, it does not contain puzzles, action, or difficult moral choices. Mm-hmm. You just got a few, about less than a dozen screens to explore, seven characters who you can quote-unquote talk to, and each section of text is accompanied by the illustration of the area of which you're in. So the screen is basically split into, or the frame is split into two sections. And before you ever start the story, I love that at the very top, you have, just in a pixelated font, Cesse n'est pas un jeu. <laughs> That'd be uh, well, um, Magritte, right? Uh, this is not a game. Yep. <laughs> And I just, and the thing is, it's a very, it's a tone piece where you're just listening to a lot of lamentation and it's very surreal. Like, cause at one point I thought, oh, so these are like if fantasy characters sort of just became, I don't know, like they entered a shanty town or something. And then it says kind of for some and not for others. It's so surrealism is earned. In this case, even if everything looks sort of normal or that would exist in the real world somewhere. Yeah, I'm, I'm clicking through it right now. I'm getting, you know, very choose-your-own-adventure kind of vibe. Uh, the path ahead leads to the standing stones. The right-hand path leads to the gate. Pick one or the other. Click it. I went through the entire... all. The, I read all the text that's possible because eventually the conversation will cycle, but there is a lot of conversation with each of these characters, more than I thought would have been. Because every time I thought, okay, we're going to cycle back now. No, we got three more paragraphs. This person has something more to say. And you can actually just sit down with a a woman dressed in complete medieval armor and listen to her recite poetry of her own making. Really? Yes. It's just, I kind of regret looking up why this was made. Because it's kind of beautiful on its own. Especially since one of the characters will just tell you a full story that I assume is supposed to be allegorical to the meaning and tone that this piece is trying to affect. But it was made for Ruin Jam 2014, which was 
which started September 1st, which hmm. kind of indicates what it's in, what the entire jam's genesis was. Yeah, maybe like so uh, is there any sort of I don't know if you know uh, prompt with the the idea of ruin. The prompt was apparently we're ruining video games because this was in September of 2014. It was right as the explosion of August just was happening. So yeah. they made a so like any protests in game circles like this, they made a jam. So your game had to include things that were quote unquote ruining video games, games oh. without death, games <laughs> that walked everywhere, games right. about SJW, yeah. games with minority characters front and center, games uh. that had non-traditional gameplay. And this one, well, no puzzles, no action, difficult moral choices, choose your own adventure, just wander around, talk to people. And eventually, you, it ends when you try to meditate in the middle of the standing circles, but you can only do that after the game you've taken a number of turns. That's just how the game ends. Uh-huh. Or not how a game ends, but you can now access the ending after right, just yeah. a number of turns. There's like nothing you do will cause the ending to come to be allowed. Yeah, and I, 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 I mean, I'm... Instantly appreciating the writing here is uh, just the piece I'm looking at here. So you, you you pick a turn in the road, and then you're met with a prompt that says, The days and the nights are slippery, like consecutive fever dreams. You slide between them, occasionally stopping to gasp for time. Your throat is sore from all that gasping. Yeah, that's, that's, it's expressive, and you know, I'm, I'm instantly kind of drawn into this. You know? I, I noticed that as well. A lot of the, the – because there's two types of text – there's the white text, which is supposedly description of where you are, and then the blue text, which is dialogue, should you talk to someone. And I like how, like, the text doesn't really describe where you are, but, like, describe <laughs> the feeling or a lot – it's a lot of metaphor. It's a lot of metaphor. It's a lot of allegorical nature of what's around you. And I like yeah. that. And the images themselves are kind of like if the Commodore 64 had a wider color palette. Because <laughs> it's that very large pixel congregation, almost impressionistic, impressionist, or as impressionistic as you can get with pixels. I'm just attracted to games with beautiful text sometimes. The idea, I what you're saying, sir, just to bounce off that. So it was interesting when you were saying it was for uh, Ruin Jam, because what it, the first thing that I thought of when, when, it, when I'm looking at the screens for the game and some of the text, it kind of reminded me of... You know, I thought it would be like uh, like ruins as in, you know, like the, the leftover structures. Or I thought that's, that too. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's what I'm looking at here. I'm on a screen right now where there's there's a, a knight in armor reclining with a sword, you know, kind of like in repose. And, it, you know, it, it reminded me so much of like a, a, a typical screen from Dark Souls or something like that, where, you know, so much of uh, the, the atmosphere, the aesthetic is about... You know, it's really about ruin, you know. I, I can't remember the famous quote from the director where they were trying to make a dragon or something like that. And one of the artists came to him with this really, like, you know, ferocious-looking, you know, scary, gross thing or something like that. And he said, you know, try to capture, you know, the inherent sadness of, of a, you know, this immortal creature, like, left to, to atrophy, kind of to fall apart by itself. And I kind of get that, that sense of, you know, of what that means for ruin, you know, from the text and from these screens and stuff like that. That's a nice thing to capture in a little game like this. Yeah, there's a lot of lamenting and a lot of forgetting because some people don't remember how they got here. They can't 
the whole thing starts when you were like you heard a car drive by and then you went after looking for it only to find that traveling through the pines you ended up back at the fork in the road that you had originally left you don't think you got turned around or if this space is real or the space is just twisting in such a way that it doesn't want you to leave these like half dozen screens yeah and uh, you know just to continue with dark souls uh, you know that that's i think part and parcel of it is a lot of the the cycling back and returning to one location and doing things over and over and over again with dark souls i think uh, brendan keogh had written a piece where and he structured the piece this way where it was he was doing something over and over and over again running the same routes through the same areas and until he has a, a memorization down and it's a process for him and he cycles through it and how that kind of built off the the themes of the game where it's like people kind of stuck out of time and I'm, I'm seeing that here just with the text i'm looking at one now where it says uh i'm speaking to this character this knight that's kind of reclining and uh, she says a scholar once told me that the universe is constantly expanding dot 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 or did he say constantly contracting i think i think he said expanding growing you know and that, that's like, like to me, that's such a Dark Souls line. That's the kind of thing where you talk to people thinking you're going to get a straight answer for why am I here? What's going on? You know, <laughs> like, what is this place? And they're kind of like these ethereal kind of like souls that like, you know, they're, they're doing their own thing. They're trapped in their own minds. They're just going through the same cycles over and over again. And everyone's kind of like apart and just not really fitting into this linear idea of, oh, I'm going to go through this and slay the dragon at the end and be the great hero and you know that normal kind of narrative arc that we're used to or you could or i'm just talking to madame rita the fortune teller and just goes you know cecilia reminds me of this guy i knew in college the kid dressed up in a leather jerkin and a long green cape wherever he went he wore his hair and, and his beard long and sometimes you'd seen him with an honest to god quarterstaff he had piercing eyes just like she does like can't fault either one of them too much What's life without little fantasy? I think I knew that kid. <laughs> I think I went to school with him. I definitely have one with a, a top hat, at least. And he rode a unicycle, too. <laughs> so, um... Your uh, second you game. go on to second game? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, okay. So one I've been playing a lot, a mobile game on Android, called Barrier X. And it's, I think, you know, one in a, in a pretty well-familiar format for... I think most people, even even you know people that regularly just stick to the mobile game scene, you know the racer is is such a foundational I think kind of game for that area. You know even just like the if you want to talk about endless runners and things like that, they're all kind of in the same you know, ballpark. Barrier X is sort of cut from that kind of cloth. You play as basically a little paper airplane kind of looking shape, flying forward, you know, ever forward on the screen. And it works in the same way as uh, like an amplitude or something like that, where you have little tracks and you can kind of press left or right to hop to different tracks and, you know, just to avoid barriers and stuff that come down on any one of them. It's got a little bit of like a, um, you know, it's sort of kind of like a race the sun or something like that. It would be a, a similar type of game, except this one works down with very, you know, regimented paths that you have to follow. What I like about this one is that they use that structure of, you know, you have, you have to press left, right to jump on these different paths, and you're stuck in one of them instead of having full, direct, one-to-one control of, you know, how you tilt to move left or right. They use that as an excuse to throw a lot more obstacles in your face. So you end up getting something that's like, it's got that kind of super hexagon kind of loop to it, where you'll start, you'll get killed immediately in, in, in 5 to 15 seconds, and then boom, pop right back in it, you know, again, 
and right back into that loop until you kind of get you catch up to that rhythm that the game is trying to put you on. And, you know, same sort of, it got really, really catchy tracks that play alongside it that kind of just fall, like they, they're perfectly looped to go right into that, you know, the way that you typically experience the game where everything works within that, you know, 15 to 30 second cycle. And to unlock a new level, all you have to do is survive for like 60 seconds with whatever extra barriers they send out for that level, you know, little gateways, things like that, obstacles that will appear in your path and cause you to get stuck for a little bit and working with the simple inputs for the, you know, for a phone, if you're playing on Android, just you press left or right. And if a thing gets in your way, you press both at the same time. So you can just really easily lose an hour. I think just getting locked into that, just like tapping, tapping, tapping left or right, you know, just to, to zig back and forth. And it's a, it, it has such a great evocation of speed in it that, you know, they do a lot with a little of just taking little shapes and showing them just whizzing past you, just like flitting past almost like a, um, strobe effect of, of of things whizzing past you so you feel you're almost losing control like the, the entire time that you're playing kind of reminds me of f-zero and its color palette yeah yeah definitely especially uh, the screenshot i'm looking at has like speed like one of those speed up triangles that if you go over it you suddenly go faster yeah yeah the uh the chevrons that's kind of the uh and whenever one of those appears it means that an obstacle is coming so you get the forewarning i think for me, what I find what I'm playing is I keep my eyes in two spaces. I keep it on the ground where uh, you get these, these chevrons appear, and that indicates that a, an obstacle is coming up in front of you, which means you have to get off the track you're on. And then in the distance, you can see that obstacle coming up towards you. So they give you this, you end up playing a kind of playing like hot potato of like, as soon as you change to a new track, a thing will appear there. You get the chevrons that come up and then the obstacle appears down in your distant line of sight. Slowly, you know, slowly, get very, very quickly gets closer, and then you have to hop to another track. So when they start throwing them at you, staggered, it's about you're looking just below your craft to see where the chevrons are appearing, so that you know that something's coming, and you know how much time you have before it comes down the way. And then looking ahead of you to see the obstacle coming down, and try to plan the best time to dodge it, and then dodge back to you know, you pop onto another track, an obstacle comes down, pop onto a different track, you know, base it off, and you get this nice rhythm. Of, of zigging back and forth between them, kind of slaloming. Uh, just, a, you know, exactly what you kind of want for a game like this, where you kind of fall into this pattern of zipping back and forth and, and getting faster and faster and faster until the whole thing just blows up. I'm really liking the neon-style color scheme they got going. A lot of purples and blues and pinks. See, so, yeah, it has this, you know, limited palette, but I think it does everything that it needs to do with that, you know, to as far as giving you all the legibility that you need to know roughly, you know, like how fast you're going, how fast things are coming down the track. And, you know, also still being like, a, I think a really uh, a pretty game too. you know, this, this purple and pink and, you know, on fire, orange and yellow aesthetic. I'm glad actually someone else brought a mobile game on for once. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it's, I, I do a lot of my gaming there. My so, second game uh, is actually yeah, is actually a recent release. It's just it had the unfortunate timing to come out when Dark Souls Three was coming out. So while it got a lot of attention, like in the years prior to its release, I've seen nothing in the few weeks that it's been out. It's a 1979 Revolution Black Friday. 
Oh, yeah, I, I heard something about this. <laughs> That's pretty much the extent of the conversation I've heard about it. It's by former Rockstar developer, which is what got its foot in the door to, like, all journalists' attention. It's based on the accounts of people who lived through the 1979 Iranian Revolution, Black Friday being the day when the soldiers of the Shah opened fire on protesters. Hmm. And this is that day and the day prior to set up the situation, the world, and the feeling of the time. And you play Reza, a photojournalist, and the whole thing is pretty much a telltale-style adventure game. You're having conversations, you're making choices, and of course there are quick time events sprinkled throughout that are supposed to be action sequences. And there's even a point where you have to do impromptu surgery on someone who's been hit by a lot of glass or been shot. So yeah, it really hitting the telltale formula hard, except it also adds a uh, photography element where you can uh, press a button, you bring up your camera to look at certain hotspots around the various areas that you can walk, and then you have to wait till these two half circles line up so that the camera's in focus and you take a shot, and then the game shows you, oh, it's very similar to one that was taken in real life, and then it tells you a little history based on what this picture is supposed to be representing. Hmm. The idea is that, because, let's be honest, my entire understanding of the Iranian Revolution is through Hollywood movies, and that is no way to learn history of Iran. Sure, yeah. I know through parts unknown, it's not much better. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea that this is actually from the point of view of Iranians on the ground is almost itself revolutionary, well, in Western media anyway. I'm, I actually don't know anything about if Iran is allowed to talk about it. But because this game itself has actually been banned by the Ayatollah. Just that feeling, just that it's taking on subject matter, that pretty much nothing else, not just games, but I can't think of a movie, TV show, book, or even just, or even pundit who could, like, properly explain the revolution. I'm not sure the game itself explains it, but it does a damn sight better in introducing the concept that you know nothing about this just by what little it does introduce. Hmm. I, you know, I was trying to think back to uh, where I had heard about this from, and I realized it was Simon Parkin's coverage. He he talks about the the developer, I guess, uh, Kansari, Navid, Navid Kansari, a little bit in his book, Death by Video Game. I can't quite remember exactly what chapter it was in, but yeah, I think he was drawn to this. I, I, uh, I, he covered it actually for the New Yorker too. A truly revolutionary video game. That was the piece back in uh, 2013, I think. Yeah, this has been getting coverage for a while. Yeah, and uh, as I recall from 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 Parkin's coverage of it, this the this developer he's been looking for a way to you know what's the the best way that you can use the medium to kind of try to take people to these places that you can tell these different kinds of stories. Maybe something a little bit similar, I guess, in intent to something like uh, this war of mine. Maybe. Yep. Yeah. The less romantic side of these places, I think, that people are, that especially video game players are used to going, you know, but behind the, you know, behind the sights of a gun. And that's the way that we're used to seeing them. Really valuable, you know, the kind of experience I hope we get a lot more of. Yeah. Although I do wonder if, like, if I, like, need, I, like, I need criticism with this because I'm not sure I'm getting all that I can from the game, but mm -hmm. simple, simply through my ignorance. For instance, it's like, 
when uh, we're presented the revolution, we think, okay, there's the Shah's people who want to remain autocratically in control. And then there was the Ayatollah and all the protesters that brought him down. And it's sort of like set up as this one-on-one cage match. Hmm. Except, no, half the time the protesters are bickering with themselves because there's like half a dozen different factions. You have communists, you have liberal democrats, you have clerics, you have fundamentalists, you have anarchists. They all want the Shah gone, it's just they can't agree what happens next. Mm-hmm. And it's just, and it's in that chaos that like what happened happens. And that was just an interesting revelation that no one bothers to ever say about the revolution, especially given yeah. how important it's become in politics in the decades since. Yeah, the the fractious way that these things occur in reality is often smoothed over for the the way that I think, especially us in the West, you know, experience them. Uh, much more about which side are you on? Is it black or is it white kind of thing? And if the game is able to kind of convey some of that sense of just how many factions, how many different people, how many different upbringings come into play in a situation like this, that's uh, really valuable, I would think. Another thing it does well is just the sense in being in a protest crowd. There are a lot of reused models and then there's like a lot of a lot of them doing choreographed protest dancing because, well, it's on a limited budget and limited technology. But mm-hmm. somehow it just, it works. Just the, it gives across the impression of being in a large indistinct crowd where you don't know most of the people, but you know why they're there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if it uses the assets to just be evocative of that idea, you know, I, you know, I, I, I usually try to suspend my disbelief about things like that. So, you know, like if, if the game is, is artistically trying to get an idea across to me, like usually I can meet him halfway on it. For some reason, I feel like in some ways that might actually be benefit rather than something you have to ignore. Hmm. It, it certainly helps like when you have all of them kneeling down to do the prey at once, the, the choreography obviously works in its favor because yes that's how it works you all do it at once right but when it's just the simple protest and you have the same five people scattered around doing the fist bump at the same time i I don't know because you don't see their faces they're completely indistinct because you're seeing them from a rooftop they're at a distance and somehow it all fades into just like this mass so the fact that they could be identical clones doesn't matter so much as okay they are the same person essentially because I am at a distance and they're all here for the same purpose. Hmm. That's an interesting duality. You know, the, the, the crowd and protest united behind a single idea and then the, the different individuals that come to make that up, how one gets lost within the other, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, there's, there's a lot to mind there. I think I also kind of wish like there was more writing about this because there are aspects of it that I'm not sure how much of it is real. Because, of course, it still has to have a story, and then there's, like, this thriller aspect going on with your character as he gets caught up in this revolution. The underground politics of trying to behind the Shah's nose, but then it's also a frame story. It's a flashback frame story where you're a political prisoner several years later. Mm-hmm. So, it's, and it's like, okay... Your torturer's name is based off of a real person who was a warden at this real prison. How much of what's going on here is fantastical bull for a plot boiler thriller, and how much is based on reality? And again, my ignorance, I don't know. 
Yeah, I mean, I see just looking at the Steam page for it, it says in, in two different lines, this is authentic, historically accurate, stunningly engaging experience, and then further down, it also says it's a cinematic experience. And, you know, um, uh, while allowing for, you know, the fact that uh, obviously there are uh, various goals that I'm sure the game is trying to achieve, those are, I think, going to be at times at odds. You know, the historic accuracy and then making something cinematic because real life is not always cinematic unless you're you're catching it in a way that is it's framed in order to 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 be that way you know what what you see through the camera lens that kind of thing that's what makes it cinematic so uh interesting all the same and the uh, and it brought up several times the idea that the camera itself is a dangerous weapon Hmm. simply by what it takes although it's an idea that's brought up and i'm not sure anything is done with it They've also been a little messy in their messaging because they say this is not an episodic game, but at the same time, the characters in it have so many more stories to tell. Hmm. So, and especially the way it ends is kind of, it feels like, okay, that was episode one, but it isn't. Mm -hmm. I'm not, they've been a little unclear on that messaging, but Um, I don't know. I'll have to dig in. I don't know. We'll see where it goes. Your third Um, game. Yeah, so one that I just finished up recently, Rusty Lake Hotel, which may be a little bit outside, I guess, of my usual kind of fare, but uh, a point-and-click game. I guess these guys do uh, a lot of room escape kind of things. Cube Escape, I think, is the is the regular game series that they do on mobile. I haven't played any of the previous titles, but the one that I got in on is uh, Rusty Lake Hotel, which I, I was immediately kind of drawn to it by this really idiosyncratic Victorian aesthetic that they're going for. The idea is that you play as essentially, I think, a butler that works at this hotel. And it's out in the kind of, it looks like in the Moors kind of thing, this old, like, you know, British kind of manor house owned by one Mr. Owl. Uh, And uh, he is entertaining three guests and in, in a kind of a typical like clue kind of fashion there you know it's a it's a mr rabbit a miss miss peacock miss pigeon kind of thing they're all animals you know um it's quite literal miss peacock miss there's an elk in a waistcoat yep 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 with a little like kind of furry goatee thing you know uh yeah there's a there's a boar with mutton chops that kind of thing um, so you have the, the owl hosts these five other gentlemanly, you know, genteel animals that come and over the course of the next five days, you kill them all and feed each one to the surviving members. It's really twisted and weird, but the way it plays out is via these point and click puzzles where on each evening, uh, in a row, you go to attend to one of the guest animals, you know, the pigeon, the bunny, the, the boar, or whatever. And then you have to solve a puzzle in their room that allows you to kill them. And there are these weird Rube Goldberg-style machines where you might have to, say, feed the pig food so that the, food, the, the pig goes to the bathroom, and while the pig's in the bathroom... You, bathroom you rig a battle axe up on a a a, like a pulley and crank system so that it drops on his head later on uh you know and it involves you know in a typical point and click kind of game fashion clicking around the environment finding the manipulable objects and then figuring out where they go so uh, and they throw you know so many at you at a time that it you you have to really you know think 
it keeps you thinking cleverly. So it's, it's rarely a situation where you're just clicking randomly around the environment to figure out what brings you to the next screen, what allows you to progress. It's usually figuring out, oh, okay, I, this symbol corresponds with this symbol. So if I put this playing card here, it will cause this key to drop and I can use this key to unlock this thing that gives me the knife, but I can use the knife to stab the, the rabbit or whatever like that. Very morbid, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> I looked at the screenshot and I thought immediately, sold. Yeah. I immediately, and then you told me, and then you have to kill all of them. Not sold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, and then you have to feed them to the remain. And there's a, um, there's a three star system where you, you can add extra ingredients to the meal to, so that the rest of the guests, when they eat their compatriot, are impressed or not impressed by how many of the ingredients you got right as you go through it. And it ends on a, I think uh, appropriately surreal level where I, I would have trouble articulating what exactly the meaning of the game is and, and where it goes from there. But obviously you, you work through the menu to the end. So stuffy Victorian animals eating one another. If there's not a metaphor in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they, they, to the game's credit, they make them all seem like they're, kind of insufferable, <laughs> terrible <laughs> creatures. So so you don't feel quite as bad about what you end up doing to them. But it's pretty weird. Pretty I don't weird. suppose the game gives you any reason why you're doing any of that. It, 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 it suggests a possible... I, I guess I won't, won't exactly spoil it, although it would be hard for me to because it's a very abstract ending. I will say that ultimately, when you're finished with the, the full you know, five-course meal, as it were, there's a, a final scene that kind of wraps up with an explanation for why these characters were summoned to this area and why they did what they did. And uh, it ends on a, a kind of an unsettling kind of note. Lovely. <laughs> right? Yeah. Nice that someone that someone else brought a point-and-click adventure on for once. Yeah, it was, uh, it's been a little bit of a while since I played one, but uh, it was kind of nice to get back into it, and on such a weird note. All right. So... Speaking of weird, <laughs> my third game is Pony Island. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I, this is like the definition of like a spike. Cause for like, I don't know, several hours, it was like, oh, wow, this is a lot of hyperbole over how great this game is. Next day, nobody talking about it anymore. Yeah. So it was based off of Ludum Dare before the developer decided to go all out and eventually got a Steam release. And the, the challenge was the game has to be on one screen, which Daniel Mullins took as it is on one screen. It's, you're looking at a CRT television. You can see like the reflection and the gloss of the, of the screen. You can see the edges of the thing. And then the game is on this virtual CRT television. So it is all on one screen. And Pony Island is about a game called Pony Island, and and the game within a game is exactly what you'd think a game like Pony Island is. You're a pony, although I object to this because you're not a pony, you're a unicorn, who then has to jump over gates before you reach the end of the level, and then you get to play on the next level, except pretty much right off the bat, there's something off about it because the game doesn't work and you have to go into the option menus to fix it by pressing a button that says fix start button. <laughs> and there's just... A little meta. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and another one of the options that doesn't really do anything is, I think it's called cute facade, which you can click or unclick. You can click or unclick free-to-play model 
so it's obviously there's something off and eventually the game starts breaking and, or you have to break the game in order to progress. Like you have to give your pony laser powers out of its mouth simply to get by enemies who will kill you and prevent your progress. And, sure. which, and you do this by hacking the game's code and you, by hacking the game's code, I mean, you have, it's like a puzzle thing where this key is dropping down if-then statements, but then you have to adjust what certain if-then statements are to have it continue. You can have oh. it move right, or there's these multiple columns, move right or left to try and get past corrupted files or things that'll send it back to the beginning to eventually get it into a lock at the bottom of the screen. And that is apparently coding in this universe. I don't know how much I should tell you because at the same time I had most of it of the revel because a lot of the, because you know, it's something off. A lot of the revelations eventually are why it's off eventually come to light. It's only two to three hours, but at the same time, I feel like going in as blind as you can would be a fascinating experience. Yeah. I because was- I've seen the trailers of it and the trailers sort of give away a little bit of yeah. the where it kind of goes from there. But I, I, I gathered a, a game very much in the kind of um, frog fractions <laughs> kind of school uh, of postmodern, I, maybe. Yeah, I feel like there's more narrative to it, especially like some of the surface level things you can say what it's saying are pretty obvious. It's game about games, free to play games in particular, or cutesy little time waster games. But then Pony Island has lore. <laughs> and I didn't realize this on my first playthrough. It's only when I went to the uh, Steam achievements because of how meta this game is. I fe- feel like that's a legitimate way to learn more things about this game and found, oh, you could actually find out who you are playing as, like the person sitting in front of the CRT monitor within the video game. <laughs> you can actually, like, you can find a, a Bahumat, a devil who will answer your questions and like what some they're like who am i or how did i get here who killed me and it's like this my god this thing is lore <laughs> and i haven't found all the because no one posted the answers online i'm going to have to go back in and find them the hard way mm-hmm. because you have to get you have to find them and first of all bahamut is like hidden away because sometimes the screen will have like this little pixely dance and you have to click it and that will open up like the hacking mini game that you have to do some things some of them aren't necessary so you might miss them and they'll open optional information or give you real world tick like carnival tickets you'll actually when when you get a ticket you'll actually see a hand come in front of the crt monitor holding a pony island ticket and so those are just hidden around and i kind of want to figure out is there more to this? Because from what little I was able to glean about what Bahumat's answers are, it feels like there could be like a theological thematic message going along with this. Sure. Or, or a philosophical a, message. Or it could be an ARG for Frog Fractions 3. <laughs> it's a different developer, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'm That's, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, levels on top of levels on top of levels. That's... <laughs> and the ending is legitimately it's like one of those fist pumping awesome moments even for how silly it's like it's a game called pony island <laughs> it's i i think that's part of the and that joke works pretty much through its running time which is great yeah, but it has two to three hours or so yeah but it has so much more going on because the pony island formula gets evolved 
And there are, like, there are optional things where eventually the game will crash and you have to reboot the game up. He says, well, click Pony Island. Or you could check around other things on this desktop. Like, hmm. here's Pony Galaxy, which is basically, it's kind of like a, a Zaxxon, where you just shoot, things are coming at you and you're a pony in space and you're just shooting things as they come at you. Yeah, the 2D that's... space shooter. And there's a text version of Pony Island. A gate is coming up. What do you do? Jump, keep running, shoot laser. Okay. <laughs> I think there was a, a little bit of a, maybe a, like a micro trend, I, I think especially towards the, the end of last year, of simulated desktop environments in games. Uh, you know, you had you know, your Hacknets and uh, Her Story. Sibel. Sibel, Sybil, yeah. And there, there was like a cluster of maybe about five or six of them that all kind of came out around the same time. And it's been, I think, interesting to see how people play around with that and, and what that means. You know, what kind of nostalgia are they are they trying to evoke with that? Because they're very, very clear, you know, different historical eras that they can go back to with what kind of desktop you want to evoke. And, you know, what do you want to go cyberpunk with it? Do you want to go with like old AOL instant messenger kind of, you know, nostalgia or an old MMO kind of thing? And how that's a thing that you can lean on now and have have reader uh, readers um players respond to it because because they're you know that they're coming with that experience like armed with it and what it means and what you're trying to evoke um how much you can get out of that yeah pop matters we actually did like an hour plus podcast just discussing the various elements of this game and hmm. when daniel mullins found out he says wow you got an hour out of this? It's almost as long as the game itself, he jokingly said. And to be perfectly honest, I feel like, no, there's a, there's a lot of, like, craft elements, a lot of design elements, a lot of, and I don't know, but I feel like a little bit of criticism to figure out what it, what's going on behind the scenes is worthwhile as well. Of course, yeah. Well, preaching to the choir here, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Nick, for coming on, and thank you all out there for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate us on iTunes. Every bit helps, and at this point, I'd like any of that help. So if you're on iTunes, please, five-star rating, not five-star rating, just give us a review, please. And likewise, if you liked this and all our other work on Critical Distance, please consider supporting our Patreon at patreon.com slash crit distance. Every bit helps, and we thank you because that's how we're able to keep bringing criticism and create some historical record and a lot of other things like this. I'm babbling now. <laughs> thank you, Nick, for coming on at the last minute to help me, with, help me fill out. No, yeah, no problem. I'm uh, really happy to be here. Great game you brought on. And bye.